My computer says meeting is now streaming live on Facebook. Okay. All right, I'm gonna minimize that off my screen. So it's away, it says we are streaming. Faith says we're all good. All right, Greg, I have managed three times in a row now, maybe four, not to botch, sending us to Facebook Live from Zoom. Congratulations. I'm glad that that's not my responsibility. <laughs> I'm glad, uh, as being the technology expert, which we'll uh, chat about, I guess it's appropriate that I should be able to do some of the more basic functions like stream from Zoom to Facebook. How are you? Uh, asymptomatic, so that's good. Asymptomatic's good. Yeah, we're, 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 we're struggling to remain asymptomatic down here in, in College Station. We're, we're cases continue to go up and uh, it is uh, a, a real conundrum, I think, for the university as we we're you know, getting, getting to the point where a month from, you know, we're not quite a month from classes, but we're, you know, a month and a week from classes, kind of, and, uh, and cases continue to go up. So it will be a real challenge. Yeah, well, I mean, might as well just kind of jump right into this. I think there's a few things I'd like to get into, uh, get into it with you this evening. Um, and one is some of the challenges universities are having with responding to COVID-19. And in particular, the ways in which the Trump administration seem to want to make these challenges exacerbated and to make them more pronounced. And one of the things I said to you before we went live was I, um, I really wanted to address um, what was coming out of ICE and coming out of the Trump administration today, I believe, is when the announcement was, uh, but maybe it was earlier in the week. Um, and essentially, you know, without getting into the details of exactly which uh, students did impact, we can talk a little bit about the specific visas. But the essential takeaway is that students that are here um, to take classes, if their university goes online, um, two things are happening, essentially. One is if they're already here, they're expected to leave. And if they're not here yet, they're not going to be get, uh, receiving a visa uh, if they're attending the university where the, all of their courses have gone online. Yeah. And so, uh, Greg, explain to me in a, as positive light as you can why this is a, as a strategy that the Trump administration thinks is appropriate in the middle of a pandemic to force international students to, to go home to intimidate universities I and mean, what, what's your take of what's going on here? So I think that let, let's address first the Trump administration's defense of this policy, which is they say that they're actually uh, uh, showing some flexibility because, and, and here I think for very good reasons, there, there's general rules that if you are uh, taking an entirely online education program that shouldn't qualify you for a student visa to come to the United States. In normal times, I actually think that that's a good policy, right? Uh, but these are not normal times, obviously. And, and this really does catch international students who are uh, in the United States attending universities that for, I think, very good reasons have decided to conduct all of their instruction online in the fall semester. 
Uh, you would think that, that, now what the Trump administration says is, well, as, as long as you're, you're taking some of your courses face to face, you're fine. Uh, I think it might even be one course face to face, you're fine. But in these institutions that have gone all online, because of the, what I would consider to be a national emergency with the pandemic, uh, none of the courses are being offered face-to-face. -face. So it, it's, it's one of these situations where uh, by the rule, the Trump administration is being more flexible, but by the situation, they're not being flexible at all. And, and I think it's just part of a pattern. Uh, the, the administration is using the pandemic to implement anti-immigration policies, right? They, they have uh, basically suspended student visas for people who can get here to take face-to-face -face courses here in the United States. Uh, it's, it's almost impossible to get those now in time for the fall semester. Yeah. Uh, they two students dealing with that. Yeah, they've stopped issuing H-1B visas which uh, impacts universities because a lot of faculty who are hired from abroad come in on H-1B visas. Uh, that also affects, you know, other high, other professional categories, you know, in the high tech industry and other, other industries. Uh, so it's, it's part of a pattern at, at, at kind of whittling away at past immigration policy that encouraged immigration into the United States for talented people. And I think that that is part of a, of a much larger policy that is completely consistent with the president's stated goals. And given the fact that I, I think that uh, Stephen Miller, who is uh, one of Mr. Trump's prime advisors on these issues in the White House, has now been in the White House for three and a half years. I think he has Trump's complete confidence. Everybody else is leaving the White House. Uh, he is able to implement these kinds of slow, steady steps to take America away from its previously relatively open, well, certainly more open policy toward immigration. Personally, I think that that's a horrible policy choice. I think it'll harm us economically, I think it'll harm us socially, I think it'll harm our foreign policy because we'll be weaker in the world. But that certainly is what the president intends to do. That's his, uh, he's, he's not doing this on the sly, right? He's, that's what he campaigned on. And uh, you know, as, as we've said before, Justin, elections have consequences. <laughs> yeah, elections do have consequences. It, um, it, it, it does feel like, uh, I use the word, pattern, which I think is a, is why when things like these come out, they're interpreted in a, in a specific way because it's part of a broader uh, set of evidence that shows um, patterns in a particular direction. And um, I, I really despise attacks on my students and their ability to learn and our ability to share knowledge with the rest of the world and have opportunities of education and um, it's just another, another example of this administration making it harder um, for us to do that and damaging our reputation abroad and at home 
and um, just 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 tired of it some days. And you know when it's when it's just you or things you think like might kind of uh, attack your ability to do things. And even with with family things, I mean, as you know, um, I'm married to an immigrant. Those things are are really are, are frustrating to hear all the coded language, and it um, is tiring. But I really get, I do also really get fired up when it's, these are students, these people I'm doing research with, it's making their lives more difficult, it's taking their time away from their tasks, it's limiting their ability to move forward in their careers and spread knowledge. And it's just, uh, it just seems so un-American. Yeah, and, and people tend not to realize that, that international students coming into the United States are, are one of our great export industries because, uh, all of the money that foreign students pay for tuition, that comes into our national accounts as an export. We're exporting a service, even though you and I are not leaving the United States. When you teach an international student, that comes into the, into the, uh, the balance of payments as an export. And Mr. Trump is all about, you know, getting rid of trade deficits. Well, what he's doing here is cutting into a very successful American export industry. I don't even think he realizes that. Yeah. Well, and, and too, just like, you know, not even from the export standpoint, but also just all the, you know, the administration is so interested in American technical superiority, for example, and retaining the American advantage in science and technology. Well, when you look at the history of science and technological development in the U.S., so much of it um, is people who fled other circumstances for a better opportunity in America Hold it. Well, you, mean, you mean Einstein wasn't born in America? You know, and neither was John von Neumann either. Um, uh, just as two examples we might pull out of a hat that had uh, a large influence on science and technology. I thought, I thought Einstein was born in Texas. How did I, how did I miss that? <laughs> You've been reading those history books, uh, probably from those Texas uh, school classrooms. Uh, okay, well, moving on so, from that. But, but I mean, this is a segue into the more general topic of, of what we heard from the president over July 4th, right? Yeah. Because, uh, and I think that we have to take the defense of his speeches over, over the July 4th weekend, the one in front of Mount Rushmore on Friday the 3rd and the one at the White House on July 4th, Independence Day. I think we have to take the defense of those serious uh, because they were in the main 90% Mm -hmm. Kind of typical patriotic speeches that you'd hear on July 4th. Yeah. And, and a number of the president's defenders have said, oh, the media is just picking out, you know, the, the, the one or two sentences that they don't like. And they're ignoring the fact that these weren't unusual speeches. These were, these were mainstream July 4th unity patriotism speeches. So I think if you only look at the 90%, yeah, that's right. What's un, what was unusual about those speeches were the, 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 the small percentage that were kind of directly attacking other Americans. Uh, and and that, that was what made those speeches unusual. Because on a July 4th speech, you usually get 0% of the speech attacking other Americans, people who disagree with you politically, people who are protesting uh, uh, in favor of causes that you might not agree with. 
So I, I, I think that it is important to recognize that the bulk of the speeches were kind of just your normal July 4th patriotic rhetoric. But what makes them unusual is that this is a president who even on July 4th will throw in that 10%. That's not the normal patriotic rhetoric of July 4th. And, and, and I think that they, they highlighted the issues that he wants to run on. Yeah, so I, um, in, I didn't watch either of the speeches uh, in real time. And so I went back and looked at the kind of some transcripts some of the talking uh, points about it. And there was a, a piece, um, it was I think from a former George W. Bush writer that was saying, look, like, this was, this was a normal 4th of July speech. The media just jumps up and down every time they have an opportunity. So I was like, okay, well, all right. That stuff does happen for sure. And certainly with Trump, you know, the errors are certainly in the direction of not forgiving um, because of the pattern we discussed. So I read through the speech and my takeaway was uh, almost exactly aligned with yours. You know, the first, and almost chronologically too, I mean, the first 75% of it is, really standard, normal uh, American iconography, American symbolism for the 4th of July. It's appropriate for that to be at Mount Rushmore his historically. That's not out of the you know, range of normal things, praising the people whose faces are on there and also praising um, uh, other actors, Harriet Tubman being one, some, some non-white folks in there as well, um, and Frederick Douglass and celebrating Abraham Lincoln. And so, you know, it is, it's certainly true that when you look at the, the transcript, the bulk of that speech, 75, 80, maybe even 90%, as you say, is what you would hope, uh, or, or at least what is generally anticipated for a president to say some of this iconography and symbol stuff, as when we were talking about the monuments, is a little, people worship stuff is just not my thing. But yeah. it's typical, right? That's that would, what, what, what we would be oh, classifying as presidential. But you're, you're just obeying the Bible, right? You, you, you don't want to worship a graven image, right? But I, can understand, I can understand where you're coming from. We could go down that road sometime, Greg. We could go down that road sometime. Hey, look, my, my church is full of graven images. We Catholics love that. <laughs> yeah, you do. And, and some of the most beautiful... Some of the most beautiful art, uh, some um, um, classic, cl classic art from Catholicism. Yep. Um, so anyways, yeah, I, uh, but you listen to the other 10%, the other 20%, and he says these just outrageous things yeah. um, that I don't think, I mean, be, just because they're typical of him doesn't mean that they're not kind of destabilizing to political norms and civic institutions and political discourse. Um, and, and that's why people are jumping up and down. It's not the fact that, yes, 80% of it or 90% of it was as it should be on the 4th of July on the celebration of independence and pushing forward as a country towards more freedom. Yeah, it's appropriate. But then to use that to attack your political opponents in such kind of crude and aggressive terms, um, you know, is, he just doesn't seem to be able to pass up the opportunity to do that. Now he's, uh, He's a divider, not a uniter. He, he, I think his strategy is get me, get me to that 46% that got me through the electoral college last time and, and everybody else can, can, uh, can suck an egg. Uh, you know, it's, it's, 
it's drawing to an inside straight. I mean, it's a political strategy that is extremely risky, right? Yeah. I, I don't know if you, you were a poker player, but I, back in the day, I played a little bit of poker when I was, when I was in grad school. And, you know, you just, you, n you never draw to an inside straight. Yeah. Well, and Pussy has, um, <coughs> what, I, don't, I can't remember the term for the bias uh, off the top of my head, but he won playing that game in 2016. Yeah. Um, so in his mind, I'm sure it seems like I did it once. Well, yeah. Defied all the critics and all the talking heads. So let's do it again. Yeah, I think the social psychologists call that the availability heuristic. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the thing, the most recent thing that seems like this thing pops into your head, and you go, "Oh yeah, let's do it that way." Yeah. Uh, so, and and you know, we 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 read at least some of the insider accounts in the in the newspapers that the president doesn't believe the polls. He believes he believes that, and and this is uh, you know a polling phenomenon that has a little bit of of past. Uh, uh, some evidence from the past that uh, he believes that people who support him will not be uh, honest with pollsters. Yeah. That there's a, there's a social a reluctance because you don't want your friends to yell at you because you said you'd vote for Trump. Uh, there have been some past elections where people have... Uh, have, have, it seems people have under, underplayed their willingness to vote for a certain candidate because they, they thought that it would, they would receive criticism. Uh, sometimes it's when white candidates run against black candidates, right? Uh, way back when the, in the New York mayoral race between Giuliani and Dinkins, the two there. Giuliani underpolled. This is back in the 90s. And, and uh, you know, people hypothesize this because there was a reluctance to say, oh yeah, I'm gonna vote for Giuliani because it seems socially inappropriate in a, in a, in a very diverse city. So, you know, maybe Trump is right. Maybe he, his, his actual support is a bit higher than, you know, where it's kind of coming down in the most recent polls, which is, basically 10 points behind, eight to 10 points to 12 points behind Biden uh, on the national scale. But it's not enough to make up eight points. <laughs> no. yeah. So uh, the president uh, is got, uh, he's got real re-election problems right now. And, and he's doubling down on a strategy that only got him 46% of the vote last time. At a time when there wasn't sort of the obvious governance and leadership failures all around you. I mean, oh. uh, as coronavirus is kind of uh, continuing its first wave or hitting a second wave, either way it's, uh, at least in the number of confirmed cases, is trending upward in numbers we haven't seen before. Um, right, and, and it, again, this plays into the reelection strategy. The president, I think very shrewdly said, schools have got to be open. Schools have got to be open. That's a popular position, right? Any, any parent who's, who's been taking care of their kids at home while trying to work from home or, or having to go into work while the kids are at home, they want the schools open. There's no question about that. And, and if the president had been for months 
instructing his Department of Education to help local schools by setting, you know, uh, uh, giving models for how you can safely reopen. If, if more money had been allocated from the various uh, bailout bills by the administration to helping local schools get ready, you know, you could say, all right, this, this could be a, 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 a good issue for the president. But I think without, this gets back to the governance issue that you mentioned, you know, it's one, it, it, you know, without having the track record of having helped the schools or made it clear that you had help on offer to the schools to be ready to open, it's tough to then just turn around and say, school's got to open. So the crisis of governance is really at the core of the problems that the president faces for his reelection, I think. Uh, and, and the fact that he said almost nothing at Mount Rushmore about COVID and a little bit more in the White House because he, he had invited first responders in uh, is an indication that he doesn't want people thinking about that when they think about him. Just missing a, a big mission accomplished fat flag draped just below the figures of Mount Rushmore. That's all we need for it to be historically appropriate. What, whatever do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think, that's, I think that's enough on this issue of the Trump administration. We got to talk about it a little bit last time. We're on it again this week. I think it's appropriately, particularly when it impacts our students yeah. and our livelihoods. Um, and by our livelihoods, I mean literally our lives in the response to COVID-19. Um, so I, I think it's been important, but I, I don't like him sucking up all the air in the, com in the room. Um, and it's been enough of a arduous uh, few years with so much of the political discussion being about him. So I wanted to talk about something in, uh, it's a little bit, I think has a little bit more bipartisan support. It happens to be something that uh, where my research has been taking. And it also feeds into some changes we're gonna be making and we have made um, at the at the podcast, which is uh, thinking about a little bit more carefully about our relationship with social media. So, um, Greg, is there any part of this? Uh, I haven't gotten a, a lot of opportunities to talk about this in kind of a freewheeling kind of public way. Is there any piece of this that's most interesting to you based on our conversations as a place you think we should start or should I just dive in at random? So I, I do think that the relationship between these artificial intelligence issues and policing is uh, relevant to the conversations we're having about police reform now, relevant to the conversations about protests. And, it's, and, and, and the other thing that I'd be interested to hear in hearing what you have to, to say is how these uh, artificial intelligence issues play into our electoral process. Uh, you know, not so much the ads and all, but but the actual process itself of voting, of, of uh, maintaining voter rolls, of the, of the chances of attacks, of cyber attacks on our voting infrastructure. Uh, it's, it seems to me fairly obvious what the Russians did in 2016 from, from all accounts is they, you know, they just exploited the avenues of social media to try to, to sow doubt and, and disarray. But is there anything more uh, 
more direct that outsiders can do to mess around with our system of voting itself? Yeah, so let's start with policing and surveillance and facial recognition. It's the one that I think there's um, some, some conversation around right now. Let's also talk a little bit about Facebook specifically because there's some boycotting going on uh, related to Facebook that I'd like to talk about and then maybe uh, move on to both interesting kind of abstract ideas about ways we can use these tools to help democracy. This is a, some of the projects I'm involved in is talking about ways in which these tools can both change democracy maybe for the better and then the concerns it really um, puts forth both for things like voting but also kind of governance in general um, as these tools. Um, so let's see here. Let's start with um, let's start with policing. So here's the the rundown on this. Basically, Greg, there are increases in the capability of AI tools of a specific category called machine learning. And what they can do is instead of um, instead of having to get explicit rules about everything they can learn based on input data. So if you give them a million faces, they can determine that something's a face versus what's not a face, okay? And if, there have, uh, if you scale this way, way, way up um, and you get enough data and enough pictures of everyone, you can identify anyone just all based on one, still, one quality still picture um, of them. And so the first concern here is that there have been attempts by companies, one of the most notorious ones right now is Clearview AI, which has scraped all of the available pictures on social media in violation of those companies' rules and has all of pictures of you and I and everyone else that's been on social media and has gathered that in a central place where then they make that data set and then tools to match those faces available to police departments. And, um, so there's a couple, uh, it may not be clear to everyone, the problem with just that on its face, right? Just that all of our faces have been harvested and then sold to law enforcement when there's no reasonable, like that's a, it seems to me that's a clear like constitutional violation of privacy, just kind of right off the top as somewhere to get started. So that's problem one. The second problem is that um, police departments don't know how to use these tools often. So whereas like the company might say, hey, this needs to be one tool in your package of identifying someone. If there's not oversight and accountability, if there's a match, there's these cases kind of showing up in the Times and in research, they just then go arrest that person because there was a, a match based on the facial recognition data set, which is a problem. If, it's going to be, if it was to be used at all, it needs to be used as part of a tool set, not as the one thing that's used as enough evidence to arrest someone. That's problem number two. The third problem is that for a variety of reasons, the data that these algorithms are trained on are underrepresented um, for minorities in general. So they do not do as good of a job at identifying correctly black men and Hispanic men as they would you and I. And so the error rates are off based on skin color. And so we have a lot more false positives for pe persons of color than there are for you and I when these tools are used uh, to identify people. 
So all these things taken together have caused a kind of a real movement or outcry against the use of them because in theory, I think, and done in an accountable and uh, a democratic way, you could imagine that there might be situations we want to use these tools in. Maybe to catch a terrorist who's just blown up a building or right before they blow up a building but has committed some other kind of offense. Or you, know, you can imagine ways in which this might be helpful as a society. But because of how they're being adopted and how it's being used and there's no updated regulation, even companies who stand to benefit, um, maybe not those that stand to benefit the most, but even large tech companies are coming out and saying, okay, look, we're gonna put a moratorium on using facial recognition software. We're not going to use it at all. We're not gonna make it available as a service and give the US time to give us some guidelines about what's a democratic regulatory approach to when this is appropriate and when it's not appropriate. So that's kind of the, where we are. Um, and there's been kind of lots of discussion in that direction of how to, how to make these tools more democratic in general before they even go to the general population. Do we think kind of like uh, regulatory boards or like biology regulatory boards for AI to say that like, hey, the reliability of these tools just isn't such that even if you do things more efficiently, your error rate is going to be worse in some cases if the technology hasn't been tested as well. And it's likely to infringe on basic civil rights um, because one, people are, have perverse incentives to collect all your data and use it without your permission and without you being suspected of any crime. And two, the tools themselves, when they are used, um, the conclusions they come to are biased against uh, 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 minority groups, which is the concern that we're trying to remedy here. So are there any regulatory agencies that look at these questions? Not systematically, not, not systematically. So the um, GAO and inspectors generals look at kind of generally these issues, but it's mostly a bunch of uh, nonprofits and um, civil rights groups that are kind of collecting the data and pressing the conversation. Um, it doesn't seem that at least on this, on kind of law enforcement tools in particular, um, it doesn't, there's not a, a specific agency where this stuff is housed. And it makes sense, right? Because it's, a, it's kind of a general purpose tool, AI stuff in general. And so people, uh, different types of agencies have been using these things for different purposes. So until very recently, maybe it didn't even make sense to have one agency kind of reviewing these types of tools before they're released and not kind of after they're released in kind of the judicial system. And that's one of the arguments that with another one of our colleagues, uh, Valerie Hudson, um, some folks uh, at, a, at a number of leading institutions, we've responded to the EU commission as they've tried to think about how to do this better, how to build these governing institutions so that it is housed in one place and that we can have regulatory review boards over what we would call high risk areas, when these tools are gonna to be used to say deprive people of their freedom before they can be used at all in the private sector or by a government, there needs to be some type of extensive certification and regulatory process. Um, but 
right now the EU is one of the leaders in the world on this and even their regulatory framework is not really kind of set up and established in a way that you would like. There are some early attempts at this in the, in the EU and in the US, in the EU through the General Data Protection Regulation and in the US, um, in California, setting up the Consumer Protection, um, uh, I forget the name of the actual act, but a similar type of data protection act. And California's in the midst of trying to set up the institutions that would review claims as they came in. But it's still all, at this point, it's being, what's kind of being enforced is after the fact. There's not a rigorous review process before these tools go out into the private sector, which is something that we'll talk about maybe with uh, social media, but also with uh, uh, law enforcement. So what about social media? Let's go from the police to the private sector. Yeah, and uh, we should note, uh, Greg, as well, that there will be a takeaway coming back from our, our very own Mossbacher Institute, um, where I lay out these similar, these similar arguments, uh, where I've had some wonderful editing help um, from the Mossbacker team, um, uh, some of which you, you know well, Greg. Yes, um, intimately, one might say. So the social media problem is a different one, but a related one. It's related in that we have a space where there's an immense amount of data about behaviors and our ability to process that data in creative ways is continuing to increase. So you have to think of it as like the data is kind of the input to these algorithms. So we're getting much more fuel and the motor itself is getting really incredibly more efficient at the same time. So more data, more smart algorithms, in part because they learn from the data. They learn their parameters. They learn how to predict things from the data. So because in part, this is happening at a really fast, a fast pace, the regulation hasn't called up. And, who, and because of the way we've structured our production mechanisms in the US, the leaders of this technology have been private sector entities. And like in the past, when there were changes in how wealth was created, there, were, there have been a few companies who have benefited really magnificently from this in the beginning. Companies like Facebook, companies like Google, companies like Amazon, Microsoft, and Apple. They're not all the same. We could talk about why we'll focus on some of these as opposed to others. But basically, because regulation didn't keep up, these were the first players. There's a lot of economies of the scale. An example you can think of is the oil industry, right? They're tapping into these natural resources of data that they can collect for free and finding ways to use that for profitable ends, right? When you talk about the tapping into data. Tapping what, into data. You mean government data? What, I mean, what kind of data are they tapping into? They're tapping into the data that you give them. So um, through Google, this is, you know, this is what you search, what you click on. For Facebook, this is, a, it's a little bit more intimate than that, but it's everything that you share on the platform. It turns out that both platforms, the way they actually rely on making their revenue is by selling that data in form of prices of ads to businesses okay so basically it's just um, when i say tapping into the data it's it's the data that they as a starting point it's the data that you give them from using their platform 
But it turns out that's only where this sort of network of data starts. They actually buy data from other platforms that also identify you. Those platforms can buy your data from Facebook and Google, not just to, to, to sell ads to you, but to build up a profile of you um, for their platforms. So you can think of like large cable companies as like just a classic example that comes to mind. If they're or insurance companies, let's use insurance companies because I think that one's more clear. Insurance companies can purchase a lot of this data, right? So they're able to know lots and lots about you that maybe you didn't intend for the insurance company to have because they can purchase it from Facebook and from Google because they would sell it to them, right? So there's, there's a lot of sets of issues we could talk about ads as one. The, the thing that I actually am most concerned about it from a, from a regulatory standpoint and from a why, I don't, why I'm not wanting to be a part of Facebook myself and why as a podcast we have no longer been advertising um, over the past, I guess, two months on Facebook is, is, it's because of the same things we talk about with the president. It's a pattern of behavior that seems to be manipulative to help avoid regulation and help avoid the users knowing what actually is going on. And, you know, coming from the South in a rural community, I don't like it when people are picked on in that way. Um, and so I find it really, um, really frustrating. So Facebook in particular, there was also just uh, building off this, they did an independent audit that came out, the final report I think today, is at least when the press release was going out, where this has been systematically documented uh, from civil rights um, leaders that, uh, that Facebook actually participated in the pro process willingly. So in their defense, they are, they are showing some attempts at changing some of these behaviors, Facebook in particular. Uh, but this, the stuff I'm saying is really kind of systematically documented. Sometimes when I talk about it, people aren't as aware of it. But the thing, that I, the thing that, I don't, that I don't like about it is it's done in ways that the user doesn't know. And then the user ends up being influenced by the changing in the structure of the information without really understanding what's going on. So what do I mean by that? That means both how it affects you emotionally, how it affects your, your, your commercial habits, and how it affects your political habits. So I found myself, for example, being worked up and angry at people who disagreed with me when that's never been like a characteristic that I ascribe to or, or want to be a part of me. And then I felt that kind of fitting in with some of my dialogue over into my real life. And um, I also noticed a lot of, uh, this was less for me just because the only thing I really buy is books. <laughs> um, but you know, there are also the, the ads problem where things are tailored to you. If you search it on one medium, it shows up on another and it won't go away. Right. And so that's, a, that's its own issue. And Facebook itself has done uh, internal studies where they change up your information flow and see if they can influence your behavior to the tune of, uh, you know, of millions and millions of, of um, people who interact with the users at one time. And they showed that they can really influence whether or not you vote. And this was done in kind of a way that just, people didn't opt in. It was just done to users on the platform, manipulating their information source. Yeah. So all of that to say, 
and this is without getting into, which I think is a little bit more controversial for people, and maybe I should say something about it. There are also like hate speech reasons to turn away from Facebook, even while still wholeheartedly buying into first, uh, free speech. So I'm a big classic liberal in the sense that I believe in the marketplace of ideas and free speech is what kind of moves us forward. However, we have a set of rights that we have to keep in balance. And free speech in, is limited in all domains in society when it comes to hate speech and when your speech might harm someone. This is not uh, abnormal for our society to regulate speech when it's hurting other people. And so Facebook's complete insistence on only having one value to the detriment of our society, our, our civic institutions, because of protecting their bottom line and maybe a fear of retaliation from the president, are also kind of in a picture of reasons why moving from surveillance in the government sector and that being frustrating to the way that at least Facebook in particular comports itself in such a way that I don't really want to participate until they are changing, until they change their behavior. So what would they have to do to get you back? I'm trying to help Mark Zuckerberg here. Good, yeah, yeah. So, um, I think they would have to um, completely regulate their political ads in a way that is more consistent with mainstream society and the way that we do it. Um, I think they would need to um, more systematically make users informed of what's being done with their data and make them part participants in that or partners in how that data is utilized. So giving you some type of control, meaningful control over the data. And I think enforcing some sort of agreed upon community standards for speech. You know, you can have community standards for how we're gonna engage with one another without really suppressing freedom of thought. I mean, calling someone a loser and um, other derogatory terms and encouraging political violence doesn't need to be a part of your free speech platform um, to still express meaningful interactions and ideas. So there would need to be some way, and, and I like what Twitter's done as a starting point, which is it's the president of the United States. So if people wanna access what he has to say, maybe people need to be able to access that. However, it should be noted that the president's lying or that the president's encouraging harm, or that it violates our commonly held, and this and Twitter and Facebook, global community standards of how we should treat one another. So we're gonna flag it in, in keeping with the rest of our standards. The other thing that I wish they would do, Greg, is charge a subscription, because then everyone's incentives are a little bit more aligned. Yeah, if, so you're, if you're not paying, you're, you're not the customer, you're the product. Exactly. And, and in this way, we're not even, it's, we're the product, we're also the supply. <laughs> um, and so it's like really messed up. Um, so I think if it's what helps protect Amazon a little bit from this and what protects Netflix from some of this is, hey, you like our product, pay $5 a month. And then we'll customize it to you because we want to keep you, not customize it to our advertisers who are where our money's really coming from. Right. And yeah, Netflix still has some issues with that and Amazon has some issues with that. But if you want to change the outcome, in some ways you got to change the 
the the incentive structure and their incentive structure right now even with doing some things i've talked about their revenue structure is your behavior and so there's got to be there really needs to be federal or in global regulation about what's appropriate uses of people's data and then what's appropriate uses of it to sell them things because the targeting of this is completely unlike any other tools marketers have had and in some ways that's great like i get all kinds of great book recommendations from amazon that i'm really happy i got but making me click the next article on something that makes me upset maybe is not the best use of it um so those are a few and facebook just the example today we could talk more about it so uh, are we being hypocrites by live streaming this on facebook yeah I think the answer is um, yes. I think the answer is, uh, as you and Faith know, I've been talking about we needed a different platform than Facebook Live. So the first step has been to not spend money on Facebook advertising what we do. Right. And I think the second step is we need to find a, a platform that is not the one we're on right now. Um, and for a variety of reasons, we haven't executed on that. Uh, just like I haven't uh, completely deactivated my account on Facebook as an example. It's not being used, but this is, I think this also kind of speaks to why these need to be regulated, right? These are, it's just like having cable or water or electricity in our modern world. Like social media is such a part of that, that it, it shouldn't be so hard to walk away from or so ingrained that like, you know, I know our number of listeners will go down to begin with because people are used to just kind of seeing us on Facebook. Yeah. And that's been the, that's been the mode of which we've gotten people's attention. But I think you're right. I think it, it makes us a little bit of a hypocrite to keep this platform. And so my plan is uh, over throughout the summer and early fall is to, is to move away and maybe build out a listserv, build out a web page or something we've talked about and use other methods of letting people know what's going on with us. So uh, we're, we're, getting, we're getting to time, but talk to, talk to me a little bit about all of this in the election. Yeah, so this presents a number of problems for the election. Um, some more obvious, some less obvious. Um, so there's the social media ones, which we've talked about, but I just would like to note that it's still my belief that they're the most serious, because if you can manipulate people's uh, beliefs through information and playing on their emotions, you don't need to thwart elections. Yeah. So just keep that as a piece of this. Uh, I think the biggest threat to, to democratic society is the ability to manipulate what's true and manipulate people's emotions in such a way that there's so much partisanship and, and divisiveness that we can't kind of have elections that make any sense. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think the real threat is poisoning the, the information flow. Now, there are other issues. Um, so, um, one good news, one thing to keep in mind, Greg, as you know, uh, but the listeners may or may not know, elections are decentralized, decentralized, decentralized. And any tools that we might use should keep that level of decentralization and duplication. So, for example, right now you use a screen and states do it different ways, but the best practice is to do it on a screen and it prints out a receipt and you turn in both. So yeah. there are checks. There's a paper check and there is a uh, digital check. So 
um, from a sheer voting administration standpoint, um, how we think about using technological tools to make it easier, we need to do it in ways that still, in my opinion, decentralizes it down to the local level for a lot of reasons, and then accumulates that up to a state level where the state has the official word on that. And then everyone kind of aggregates it together to the federal level, whether we use electoral college or whether we let the states report what their own numbers were. I think this is one of the nice features that helps protect us from cyber attacks systematically at the federal level. Now, that being said, um, there were noted problems with some of the newer equipment that are more digital um, and they seem to be relatively easy to hack and the sources. So what is, what do you mean? They seem to be relatively easy to hack. Does that mean so, changing vote totals? The, the way in which it's been described that it can be done is that a hacker at a polling station could mess with the account at that station. Okay. Um, there, because of the way the, my understanding is because the way it's kind of decentralized down and reported in and each kind of individual county keeping its records, doing it at a, at a level higher than that isn't something that makes a lot of sense. So I don't worry about, as long as we keep the current general structure of who's doing the voting administration, I don't really worry about widespread security issues okay. um, related to using more kind of digital tools. Now, what's interesting to think about, and some people, some folks I work with on general AI governance uh, and how it might impact democratic accountability as we move forward, and some of this is coming from Jamie Susskind's work and uh, Johannes Himmelreich, who I work with, um, but is this idea that, you know, if we take the idea of AI tools uh, and smart tools more seriously, you know, we could do something similar, but do it in dramatically different ways. Um, we could, uh, you know, you could use biometrics, for example, that also has the duplication and also collects it at the county level and you just scan your thumb and make your vote known at the county level and they still report it up. We do away with absentee stuff. We do away with other kind of polling place issues. There's also ideas about how these tools might aggregate. Now, this is more far out there for the listeners, and then I'll come back in because I know we're getting close to the end. But, you know, we could aggregate democratic preferences in other ways than representatives. Um, and there is some interesting work out there that thinks about, okay, how might we do that? How might we overcome some of the representativeness problems but maintain some of the um, having uh, quality administration at the same time? So how do you keep the built-in bureaucratic institution expertise, but instead of having political actors guide it, it's more agreed upon rights and then political uh, popular opinion. Um, and so there are, there's also ideas about inferring preferences based on behavior. And so when you think about some of the AI stuff, some of the most leading ways of how these tools might become actors in an environment is by training them on human data to learn human preferences better than we know them so to know how to respond contextually to those. Well, depending on how well we might get at that, if, if these things, if um, artificial intelligence could understand our own preferences better than we can, that might be helpful in thinking about how we structure society. Maybe not. Um, I still like voting. <laughs> Yeah, I do too. Um, 
But I, I do think there are some reasonable critics of the Washington system right now and how it's structured from a representative democratic system. Makes me feel good to go down to the polling place and vote. It does, doesn't it? You know, and I, and I actually think that that's important because if you feel good about it, you're less likely to object to what the outcome is. And, and let's face it, I mean, voting is about generating government. It's, it's, it's not about, it's about aggregating preferences, but more importantly, it's about con- the, 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 the continuity of, govern- of government. This has well, been one of my problems with the Trump administration. They're just, they're just not governing well. I, I disagree with a lot of things they want to do, but even like the mundane things, like trying to contain a pandemic, which is not mundane, but it's, te- it's kind of technical to some extent, right? It's, it's state capacity. Uh, they're not doing it well. Well, and this is the pushback in the same literature I was talking about is there's something to democracy that isn't voting. It's about participation. It's about the norms. It's about the collective storytelling um, and the collective institutions and being engaged with them. And that is, that is one of the points that I think kind of where I'm, I am now, these tools only need to be kind of complementary or supplementary because if you erode the the, the democratic norms about how to do democracy, that's a bigger problem than the gains, you, the efficiency gains you might get from using some of these tools, say, to make voting uh, easier or to make it using some other uh, type of governance. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I wanted to say um, that, uh, that uh, I come up in the chat box here that, uh, that I wanted to just highlight real quick is about the AI and, um, government surveillance issues to kind of end with them because while the private sector ones are, they're, they're different sets of challenges that I don't want to say they're less, but they're, they're less kind of violent, I guess, than the concerns that come from the state. Um, but uh, one of the, there's been some stuff in the news about TikTok and, yep. um, and it being a, a Chinese owned um, company and um, concerns about whether that company essentially might be forced to share users' data with the Chinese government. And so this is playing out in real time with some of the security changes in, uh, um, in Hong Kong, but I think it was India in particular that was removing TikTok uh, as available for their citizens because of security concerns for how China might use that data, right. um, which just highlights that this isn't, not only is this an EU problem that uh, we're trying to make some progress on and, a, and an American problem that we're trying to make some some progress on this is play, this is a new kind of way of having battle across countries trying to insert uh, dominance on the global stage. Well, that's an interesting point on which to end. <laughs> I uh, agree. I've got nothing on TikTok. Yeah, uh, I, I've read about it. I understand that people do dances on TikTok. Mm-hmm. Uh, do dances, Greg. They do but dances on TikTok. <laughs> I do wonder what the Chinese Communist Party is going to glean from 30-second dance moves on TikTok. But who knows? Maybe something big. 
Yeah, I uh, I found TikTok in the way that I did uh, Snapchat. I uh, social I mean social media. It's why it's hard for me to leave Facebook. Social media for me was Facebook. I mean that was just that was all there was in two thousand and four, in two thousand five, and then there was a few other Twitter. I never really jumped on Instagram. I never really jumped on, and then I first I the newest one that I had to learn about was Snapchat. I was like, what is this? I don't understand why this is catching on, and then uh, I learned a little bit. My wife showed me some reasons, and I and I snap with my nieces and nephews some and then TikTok. and actually i blame faith who is here with us this evening um for for um introducing me to TikTok. um and uh it is uh, the thing that i like about it i'll say greg is it's funny and i can't say that about facebook anymore <laughs> so Shame on you faith for introducing professor bullock to a new social media platform I needed some comedy and I needed some comedy that was, that's less dark than my typical comedy, which is uh, Rick and Morty. Ah, so in our next episode, you'll have to explain to me Rick and Morty. Oh, Greg. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. let's, let's leave that as the, as the cliffhanger. <laughs> All right. Well, it's good to see you, Greg. We'll be back in two weeks again and uh, we will still be on Facebook, still being a little hypocritical for a little bit longer. And we will let you know, once we have a uh, technical solution to that uh, being hypocritical problem. Remember, hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue. I need, I need some positive encouragement. I'll take that, Greg. There we go. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. All right, bye-bye.